Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm very delighted to welcome you to today's conversation on the future of work in the sharing economy. Uh, this event is in our Working in America series, and we are extremely grateful to the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Serna Foundation, and the Hitachi Foundation for their support of this conversation series. In the Working in America series, we take a look at the issues facing uh, people trying to make a living in the U.S. economy. So, and we're particularly interested in the issues that are confronting low and moderate income working Americans. Uh, we've had conversations on a variety of issues in this series, on minimum wage, on um, business models that uh, succeed by supporting good jobs, uh, the challenge of childcare for working parents, and a variety of other issues. Um, so if this is your first time at one of our events, I hope you uh, check out our website about the issues we've been talking about. And we also should have brochures and um, some other materials on the uh, information table right outside the door. So please take a look at those things. Um, so in America today, most adults work for a living. But one of the challenges we face right now is that it's increasingly difficult for working people to earn a living. And we see this in the news all the time. Uh, reports of uh, declining wages, more part-time and unstable employment, stagnant family incomes, growing income inequality, and concerns of an increasingly economically divided society. In today's conversation, we're going to discuss uh, one of the trends that's driving change in how people think both about work and about what it means to make a living. The sharing economy calls into question both the nature of work and what it means to have a job, and it also poses new ways of thinking about what's needed for a good living. So do I need to own a car, or can I rent one from a neighbor? Do I want to go into an office every day, or maybe I can uh, offer my editing skills or other skills through an online platform where I have more flexibility and control over my hours? These questions could also be, I can't afford a car, so maybe it's cheaper to rent one from a neighbor than from budget. Or they could be, I can't find a job, but maybe I can make some money uh, offering editing services online. So how the technology platforms and other issues that are characteristic of sharing economy uh, companies changes the nature of work and the opportunities we have as a society to influence these changes in order to build the kind of economic future that we want, that's the conversation that we're going to have today. We started this conversation over lunch in uh, the little conference room over there. We're having a very lively conversation, so I'm really delighted to bring this out here and share with you. Um, so I'm going to very, very quickly introduce our panelists so that we can jump into this conversation. And before I do so, I, please, I will just remind you, if you haven't already, please do uh, quiet your phones. But uh, feel free to tweet. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, okay, so I'm going to introduce our fabulous panel, and I will start uh, far away from me with uh, Shelby Clark, Executive Director of Peers. Uh, next to Shelby is Stephen Strauss, a visiting professor at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Um, next to Stephen is Sarah Kessler. They didn't sit in the order I wrote them down, <laughs> uh, who's a reporter with Fast Company. And uh, next to Sarah is Wingham Rowan, uh, director of Beyond, Good Job Beyond Jobs. Uh, and we're very pleased to have with us here to moderate our discussion, uh, Catherine Rample, who's opinion writer with the Washington Post. So Catherine, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, well, thanks very much for having me. And thank you all for coming. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask um, of the audience, actually, which was suggested to me by, I think, Maureen <laughs> I think came up with this, uh, just a show of hands. So how many people here have actually utilized 
one of these so-called sharing economy services, whether it's Uber or Airbnb. <laughs> so it's like almost <laughs> everyone here. Um, how many people here have actually worked through one of those platforms? <laughs> okay. Um, so I myself have somewhat conflicting feelings about the platforms themselves and their implications for the future of, of work and protections of workers and that sort of thing. Some of this comes from my own um, <coughs> kind of linguistic distrust of the term sharing economy um, in that if you're paying someone for a transaction, it's not really sharing. Um, I actually wrote a whole column where I went to Silicon Valley and I interviewed a bunch of preschoolers who are like the world's experts on sharing and I said, is this sharing? And they said, no, it's not sharing. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit Orwellian in a way. Um, but, but that aside, I mean, there are, um, you know, some benefits, presumably, from being a participant in this labor force. You don't have to deal with a jerk boss. You can kind of... Um, to some extent, set your own hours, although obviously that's subject to where the demand lies um, in terms of like what, what hours you have to you know, drive. This is something we were talking about in the other room. Um, you know, you have some more flexibility. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, you don't have many of the protections that traditional employees have. You don't get benefits for the most part. Um, you have much more volatility, presumably, in, in when your income is coming in and, and at what volume. Um, and there are probably other ways in which you're exposed to risk that you may not realize going in because you're kind of going it alone, you're, you're an entrepreneur or sharing economy workforce member or whatever you want to call it, um, but maybe you don't have the same insurance, you don't really understand all the regulatory issues that you might be up against, that sort of thing. So what we're going to focus on today is really about the workers and how this affects them. There, you know, we could we could spend hours talking about the myriad other um, effects of of these types of platforms um, on privacy, on the on the environment, whatever else. Um, but let's talk, start talking about that. So I want to start with Shelby. Um, so can you give us kind of the lay of the land, like who are these workers who are participating in this economy on these? these various different kinds of platforms? Are they mostly working part-time? Are they kind of cobbling together um, uh, work from different kinds of, of organizations? Are they doing it on the side? That sort of thing. Um, so there aren't a lot of great stats. Um, uh, so, and I think things are also changing extremely rapidly. Um, but what I can say, um, uh, you know, from my experience is, uh, um, before my position at Peers, I founded um, uh, a peer-to-peer -peer car sharing company called Relay Rides. Uh, Relay Rides it allows you to rent a car from a neighbor. Um, it's available in about 2,500 cities across the country. Um, so uh, our demographics were extremely diverse. Um, you know, we saw uh, it was definitely I think like 35 uh, was sort of the, the median age, but it spanned it spanned um, well into retirement age. And so um, there were a lot of pe reasons why people were were drawn to um, to earning money by letting somebody use their car. Uh, I think that's representative of you know of the sector where you have sort of uh, you know um, probably concentration in the 20, 30 somethings, um, you know, but it definitely spans up. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know how often and how people are engaging, um, I think for uh, for the most part people are doing this on a part-time basis. They're you know they're using this for supplemental income. Um, that supplement in supplemental income can be very important. They can still rely on that income, but. Um, a small and growing uh, portion of people are doing, are doing this full time. 
Um, I think that that's been you know, um, primarily pushed by you know, the growth of Uber and Lyft, um, where you have a number of marketplaces where you can get consistent um, work uh, you know, that can, can easily become sort of a full-time salary. So um, you know, I, I, there's a broad spectrum of people who are doing it, and the percentage of people that are doing it full-time is small but growing. So, Stephen, um, you recently wrote a piece about how um, the, the rise of these kinds of sharing economy platforms is driven by the collapse of the American dream. So it's a somewhat more skeptical view um, of, of the, the, the reasons why people go into these types of work um, and the consequences for them. Could you talk a little bit about, more generally, well, what, me, what your concerns are? Let me, apologies, being the academic, I'm going to start slightly up and then work down. Long-term trends in the U.S. economy post-World War II, uh, deindustrialization, collapse of the manufacturing sector. New York City, 1948, was the largest manufacturing hub in the United States. A third of the workforce was in manufacturing. Major, major manufacturing hub. That's now down to 3% of the workforce. So what's been going on across a broad swath of the economy, not just manufacturing, many service jobs, You've been seeing kind of a hollowing out at the middle in the sense that rising automation made it possible to automate things that just were not, you just weren't able to do before. Also, large-scale offshoring. So you've seen a polarization of the workforce. Um, for those of you more interested in this, David Orter and David Dorn at MIT have done a lot of really excellent work on this. So that's the big trend against which we're benchmarking the sharing economy. One more definitional point. We've been throwing out the word worker, at least for my own remarks. I'm addressing this to the idea of the median American worker. None of you qualify as a median American worker <laughs> would be my strong bet. Um, median American worker is a high school graduate, possibly some college, and that may have been community college. Realize, I forget the exact number, but it's about 30% of the workforce actually has a college degree. Most people don't. So, all right. We've got these folks coming up against, let's take Uber as an example. Uh, you know, you're somebody who is working, oh, sorry, you're selling your services into the Uber marketplace. I don't think you're going to be in a really good position to bargain with Uber. Um, you know, first of all, I think a number of these markets have a tendency of becoming monopolies or oligopolies. I mean, think about it. How many ride-sharing applications are you going to have on your smartphone? It's going to be a market where there is, if you're a driver, you want to sell into the market where there are most buyers. If you're buying a car, for the, if you're looking to get a car for the day, you want to use the, most, the application that has the most drivers. So you've got an issue of monopoly. Another issue about these platforms, which again leads into that monopoly aspect, they're actually rather expensive to set up. I mean, if you're doing what Uber is doing, again, using them as an example, doing this in 200 cities worldwide, there's a reason they're raising a billion or so dollars. This is a non-trivial investment. That tends to limit the number of competitors. Um, it's a business where Uber has incredibly low marginal cost. You know, there is effectively no marginal cost when you use that app from Uber's point of view. There's a cost to the driver, but there is no human being involved in all of this. And finally, Uber is collecting a ton of information. They're collecting information on everybody who's using the market, they're, connect, they're collecting information on all the people who are drivers. So this is what you're negotiating against as a driver. 
I don't think Uber is an evil organization, but I do think they're a profit-maximizing profit organization. And, I, and let's pull this away from Uber, any of these marketplaces. Um, they've got an incentive to try and pay the lowest cost they can to the providers and extract the highest price that they can from the sellers. That's just basic economics. So I don't think it's a soft and cuddly process, as I think Catherine was saying. I don't see this as the sharing economy. What I think has happened, and I think in some ways it's a very good trend, is we've lowered the transaction costs, we've lowered friction in the economy. It makes new transactions possible. That's all good. But recognize that you know, from the point of view of any individual driver or any, sorry, anyone who is selling into one of these marketplaces, they have very little negotiating power. Which provides a good transition to Sarah, who, I, who actually spent, a, what, like a month yeah. earlier this year, mm -hmm. kind of, um, with your, with your <coughs> hand and, say your, your hand on many <laughs> platforms, I don't know what the right, um, uh, the right, right uh, <coughs> metonym is. As a guinea pig. Uh, you were a guinea pig, yeah. essentially, um, on TaskRabbit and a bunch of other platforms, right? So yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your experience was like and, and did you feel like you had no negotiating power? Were you able to cobble together a living? Um, sure. So. Um, I cover technology companies, and so for several years I had been hearing this narrative from startups in the sharing economy about this new kind of employment. Um, and a lot of times this was pitched as like a solution to our economic problems. For instance, like when the government shut down, there were articles that were like, oh, you're furloughed? Try working in the sharing economy. Um, <laughs> and basically the promise was that, you know, one CEO said there's no longer an excuse for anyone to be unemployed because just sign up for one of these platforms and the jobs will come to you. Um, you know, you'll, you'll not only have all these opportunities, but you can choose which ones you do. So maybe you want to do something that you love and that's an option. And you can choose when you want to do it. Um, if you don't want to work on Friday at 3, you don't have to. Um, so this sounded pretty good. And the premise of my article was basically just testing to see if this was actually an option, because if it were, I was probably going to quit my job. <laughs> um, I did not tell my editor at the time when I proposed the article. Um, so I set out, and I was like kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and uh, I mean, feeling pretty employable, because I have a full-time job in journalism, and that was hard. Um, <laughs> but I signed up for about 20 platforms. Um, and I guess the first thing I learned was that the most, like, like the, 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 excuse me, the platforms with the most potential to earn money were those for people who already had assets. So like in Airbnb, if you happen to have a summer home in Tahoe, you would probably make a lot of money. Um, I had a slowly deflating air mattress in Brooklyn <laughs> in my living room slash kitchen. Um, so not going to make a lot of money. Um, I don't have a car, so I couldn't sign up for like the ride-sharing platforms or Uber or anything like this. Um, and a lot of people in New York City I talked to who were, I took Ubers for a month too because I talked to them, were people who were already taxi cab drivers or were doing this already. Um, so that left me with, you know, I signed up for, to clean homes, I signed up to babysit dogs, I signed up to be a virtual personal assistant, um, I made a menu of what I could cook you in your home, um, just all of these things and kind of sat back and waited for my overqualifications to pay off and um, nobody wanted to hire me because you have to get admittance to some of these platforms. Um, and then the platforms where you could just go proactively make a profile, 
Um, There's so much competition that nobody would hire me, so nobody offered to make me pizzas. Um, I, I was going to host a gift wrapping seminar in New York around Christmas. Uh, I'm like really good at gift wrapping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> promise. And, and no one signed up. Um, I offered my editing services. Um, again, like I'm pretty qualified to do that um, on a platform called Fiverr, and I searched for the title of my my gig, as I call it, um, and there were 4,000, something like 4,000 similarly titled things. I couldn't even find mine. Um, so it was really hard to get work. That left me with TaskRabbit, basically, which at the time worked. People post jobs. It could be anything. And then everybody bids on, like, hey, I'll do that. I'm qualified for this reason, and I'll do it for $30. Um, and I quickly learned that was just a race to the bottom. Like, you didn't choose. You, you were, I would watch this platform fill up with jobs and then watch them disappear just as quickly because it was so competitive. Um, so I spent hours just being like, hey, I have a journalism degree. I'm awesome. You should hire me um, <laughs> to get one job and then show up. And you know, maybe it lasts two hours, and you said you'd do it for $20, and that was great. But maybe it lasts five hours, and now you're getting paid you know, nothing, and you can't really do anything about that. Um, maybe TaskRabbit sends you to the wrong address, which happened once, and maybe it's in another borough of Brooklyn. Maybe it's raining, and maybe it's really cold. Um, <laughs> but like, that's your problem. That's not their problem. You still have to go back and do the job, and you've lost those three hours of your day. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are a lot of good things that come with this, I think. But as like the current, you know, narrative. It's not a magic of, bullet. Of like, hey, this is how we're going to solve people not having enough employment. I'm not sure how viable it is in its current form. Okay. <clears throat> So Wingham joins us from the UK, mm -hmm. where he's been working on sort of some of the policy side of this, and and how do you deal with the this instability and, and lack of work and lack of protections that we've sort of been touching on here with workers? <coughs> and I'm wondering if you could talk um, about what your organization does and what uh, sort of generally about your approach. Like, do you do you mostly focus on? Um, sort of coaching workers? Do you mostly focus on lobbying about better regulations? You know, what, what's sort of the best way to tackle some of these questions? Well, I had my first book about the sharing economy published in 97, so put me down as an enthusiast. <laughs> um, this, yeah, my work is about a very different approach to this part of the economy. It's about what happens when government, uh, government bodies use their leverage um, in the way they use their leverage to make the jobs market run as smoothly as possible. What happens if they did that, if they went beyond jobs and did that with the sharing economy, with the regular work, with all the kind of ad hoc transactions that Sarah's talking about? Well, one of the things that could happen is you could have a much deeper market, much wider market, because one of the problems we're t with that we've already talked about on this panel is the, sh the, the silos. You know, you go from Uber to Airbnb to walkmydog.com to TaskRabbit. But actually, maybe uh, the, the issue for me is I'm willing to work, do all sorts of work. What I need is data. Um, and I've just jotted down three quotes from my fellow panelists. Uh, Shelby said, well, there's not a lot of great stats about this world. Um, Stephen said, well, Uber is collecting an awful lot of data. Uh, and Sarah was saying about waiting to be hired. Data is a key point here. We're in the era of big data everywhere except the sharing economy. What Sarah needed, I suggest, is something that said, look, this is where you live. You're willing to travel up to five miles from home. 
You should be doing dog walking on Monday mornings if you want to maximise your income. You should be doing luggage hire over the weekends. You should be doing cleaning on Fridays because that's how your local market works and this is what you could be earning and this is what the utilisation rate is. In other words, if you're trying to sell 10 hours, you can only expect to sell 4. This is the kind of data that's absolutely lacking in the current model, and that's just one of the problems with the current model. So, yeah, so beyondjobs.com is a kind of laboratory. Um, the British government has funded some pretty wizzo technology that could be the basis for this kind of platform for much wider, deeper, more informed, low overhead markets in the sharing economy. Um, and the issue now for us is how you get the big demand that these advanced markets need in any area to get off the ground. So there's market making involved. When you go beyond the kind of listing site model, you're into a whole set of market making issues. And, and this is true of all sorts of advanced markets, not just in irregular work sharing economy. So that's what we do. Um, and yeah, what I'd say about the sharing economy is, this is what you're seeing now is just an inkling of what's possible. But government bodies are the sleeping giants here. When they wake up to this kind of transaction, when they realise that going on spending billions on job creation may not be the best approach to the problems of automation and so on that Stephen identified, that's when this space is going to get really, really interesting and potent for a lot of workers. So Stephen, I asked you about this uh, in the other room, but I wanted to talk about it on, on our platform as well. <laughs> um, you know, my understanding is that one of the big advancements one of the big advances in the 20th century, particularly in terms of finance, but in other, other aspects of sort of business management is um, better managing risk um, and being able to absorb risk um, in terms of, you know, we, we no longer have to worry about like crop shortages, for example. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of a, an older one. But in other ways, you know, you think about companies being better at, at managing data and figuring out how to absorb the blows of the business cycle, uh, for example, or, or sort of lumpy demand in general. And it feels like with the advent of these kinds of platforms, we're kind of seeing the reverse happening, that more of the risk is being absorbed by individuals, yeah. by, you know, we can call them entrepreneurs who have always taken on risk, but there are many more of them, and they have much less coaching, I would say, or, or much less background in, in, in entrepreneurship. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, are we seeing kind of a reversal of, of the pattern of sort of uh, distributing risk over larger bodies of, of companies, of, of investors, of whatever, and more on individuals who have to lay out the expenses for a car if they're going to participate on, you know, on one of these ride-sharing services. You know, as you were saying, you didn't have a car, so you didn't already have the assets, so people are buying these assets, of uh, figuring out how to manage their time and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, bottom line answer, I would say yes. I mean, if you're a corporation, you know, in one sense, this is actually, though I would argue, part of a larger trend that, you know, if you think about corporations and financial institutions through the 20th century and into the 21st century, they've been all about how do we manage our risks and how do we figure out how to transfer our risk onto someone else. So very much uh, there is a model evolving here of corporations looking to shift risk out onto the workers. And I'm not sure if you want to describe this as part of the sharing economy or not, but a disturbing trend, at least to me, is you've seen a number of bigger corporations um, choosing to go with scale without mass. 
that they've been using uh, services to hire people on a part-time basis to do work. Amazon, for example, has been very notable that the uh, people who work in the Amazon warehouses are very often contract employees. And you, know, you can think of that as being a bit like the sharing economy. This is great from Amazon's point of view. You don't have to worry about, oh, we're slow this week. Well, we can't lay people off because that has all, I'm sorry, in the old economy, you don't lay off your workers just because things are slow on a Friday. You know, you may be able to try and schedule around it, but by and large, you absorb it as the company. In the new economy where everybody is, or not everybody, where an increasing chunk of the workers are contract employees. Or other just-in-time yep, workers. Yep, or other just-in-time workers. They're the ones absorbing the risk, and you actually have the people who are the weakest part of the value chain having to take on some of the worst risks. So, you, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about regula regulatory um, issues with regard to, to this space. So you've written some about some of the labor issues. So I was wondering if you could elaborate actually on, um, on this question of, um, you know, should workers who drive for Uber, for example, be considered employees? And I think there's a lawsuit actually going yeah. on right now about this. You know, how do we make these distinctions about who's a 1099 independent contractor and who's an employee mm -hmm. in the current economy given these changing shapes of, of, of work? Yeah. Well, one, one caveat. I'm a member of Bar Association in no state of the United States, no country of the world. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to give you more sort of an economist's answer. You know, currently you would define a contractor. You know, you're a contractor. This is the IRS quasi-definition. <laughs> If your employer only um, is interested in the result and he does not control what you do or how you do it. Now, frankly, that's the theory. In practice, the IRS has not really, at least from what I could tell, aggressively enforced it or had to enforce it. The market has kind of functioned on its own. I would argue that one of the regulations that we probably are going to want to start thinking about is starting to impose on these companies that, you know, if people What's the expression? If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And you know, if you're somebody who's running a ride-sharing platform and you're specifying to people your car must meet these criteria, you will work these hours because that's when we've got business. If you refuse to take rides when we tell you to, we're going to kick you out of the platform. You're starting to make people look like an employee. So at least in terms of where I could see regulations going and I think would be helpful, would be coming up with better definitions here. And no, I don't think companies should be able to arbitrage the workforce, transfer all the risk onto employees. If somebody's worked for you for six months, you know, how do I put it? If somebody has worked as a contractor for six months in a warehouse, at that point, I think you probably should just call them an employee. And, you know, whatever the laws are that are in place. But then you might have to apply. pay them benefits. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think the quote <laughs> sharing economy, I think there's a very positive element to the sharing economy. Anything which reduces transaction costs, I think, generally is a good thing. And there is an element to the sharing economy that is a very real platform for um, simply tremendously reducing uh, transaction costs. Look, I'm, I'm a very active user of Uber in Princeton, New Jersey. I don't happen to have a car with me at the university. And it is my method for getting around when I have to get outside the town. It, Don't criticize them, because they'll look up your data. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I used to use What's them. What to say? <laughs> Particularly if you're not in a bar association. Uh, but, so, I, I mean, I think lowering transaction costs are good when this arbitrage is simply we're ignoring existing taxes, you know, workforce rules, et cetera, that were passed for good and legitimate reasons 
Well, that's not an arbitrage. You know, you're basically taking us back to the early 20th century. And, you know, in a sense, some of this is becoming back to the future of, you know, some of these companies, well, for example, TaskRabbit and these other things, it's like, yes, you know, workers used to bid for jobs back in the early 20th century. And then people said, no, wait a minute, we need rules on this. We can't have the least, least knowledgeable group of people negotiating against major corporations without somebody putting a bit of a floor in. So, Wingham, you've written about another key regulatory issue that's come up here um, and some confusion about how it should be, how it should be implemented and, and who's responsible, which is tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and who is responsible for collecting the tax on transactions when you no longer have a company in charge of, of sort of assigning the transactions? You have a platform and you have individuals. So how do we best um, deal with the, the burdens that that tax collection, frankly, imposes. Yeah, um, most of the current platforms, I think Shelby will agree, tend to say in their small print when you sign up, you are responsible for your own tax affairs. Uh, and <laughs> there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people skim through that bit and uh, <laughs> move on. Um, and the issue I, th- I suggest is stop focusing on regulation because it, it's a sterile debate. You know, there's going to be winners and losers wherever you set regulation. Um, there's a separate issue, and it's sort of a bit out of the box, uh, and it's about how government can initiate. Because suppose government said, actually, you know what, this is all happening. A lot of it's happening uh, untaxed in the informal economy. How do we entice it into the main economy? Not how do we regulate the hell out of it. What can we do that's better that will make all these people who want to buy and sell in this very fragmented way, they wake up each morning and they want to do it in the mainstream economy. And This is where you come back to the idea of government as initiator, and this is kind of so left field, particularly in America. Um, So do do you mind if I just take two minutes to give you a bit of background before I'm sort of carted off as some sort of British nut job? Um, Every so often, a technology comes along that does need a policy shift, or it needs public sector support before it can deliver its full potential. So there's a textbook case which goes back to the 1840s when the hot new technology was water pumping. And you had hundreds and hundreds of companies sucking water out of rivers, pumping it to middle class homes uh, at high tide, because that was the only time their little feeble pumps could pump. And then a whole bunch of people came along and said, well, actually, there's a whole different model for water pumping, which is we're going to build reservoirs and we're going to pump millions of gallons of this stuff and we're going to send it down huge trunk pipes into every house in the country. And we can't do this alone uh, because we don't have permission to dam entire valleys and kick people out of their homes. Uh, We don't have permission to rip up the ground. And by the way, we've got to stop uh, people chucking sewage wherever they want. Um, And Britain (laughs) led the world in, in saying, okay, we are going to look at, you know, we're going to go down this route. We are So this wasn't about the government saying, what can we give the existing little water companies to let them uh, do their job better? It's about government saying, what could this technology deliver and what levers do we have that can pull it, uh, that can make it happen? And and Britain had public water supply long before the rest of the world. Uh, And you can see this pattern in other technologies, electricity, road networks, rail, um, canals, gas supply, uh, air traffic control, broadcasting. You have it with telephones. In the early part of the 20th century, there were hundreds and hundreds of incompatible telephone companies in America. And then in 1921, you had the Willis-Graham Act, which gave America a coherent, uh, working together, 
telephone system from coast to coast, which did wonders for your economy. So, what, so what's the analogy for... So the analogy here is what can government do in the sharing economy? Well, government is a huge buyer of fragmented labour, um, indirectly or directly. Uh, government bodies uh, own all sorts of databases of who's licensed to do what. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good press, and deservedly so, for Airbnb's uh, verified ID service, which uses, you know, your Facebook friends and so on to establish you are who you say you are. Well, actually, government already does that. It's called the passport system. So that is the highest authority in the land for our, uh, establishing our identity. So how do we leverage all these publicly owned facilities behind this kind of transaction? You know, look at all the levers that city governments, regional governments, national governments have uh, over economic policy and so on. How do you get all that going? Because Government has the motivation. You know, there's an, a lot of reasons why government want people to be earning whatever they can be earning. And, and to be reporting their income Yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah, the, my yeah. point exactly. <laughs> so you've got to tempt them into the legitimate economy. Uh, and the issue, the challenge uh, that we come across all the time, is governments keep thinking about job creation. Job creation, job creation, job creation. And as Stephen says, that might be a bit passe now. Uh, and that's quite a contentious thought, and, and fair play to the politicians. You can see why they, they have to keep ha hammering that route. But actually, maybe we're now waiting for the first wave of politicians or city leaders who say, you know what, this, the sharing economy, irregular work, people getting whatever opportunities they can is here to stay. How do we make that as accessible, rewarding as possible with progression? And as we do that, we tempt it into the legitimate economy rather than trying to crack down on it in the illegitimate uh, world. So, Shelby, um, what role does, does peers play in advising members of this, this space of, of the sharing economy on these kinds of legal issues when you know, they don't have a general counsel on hand to say, here actually is what you owe you know, in terms of hotel taxes or whatever for, for renting out your spare room? Or, you know, here's your liability if you get into an accident when you're driving. Um, sure. So, uh, Wingham, you actually set us up um, pretty well uh, <laughs> twice um, <laughs> and with your comments. Um, I feel like we've just built an you know, organization for you, know, for you and what you think we need to do. But um, uh, So, Peers uh, is an organization where the, the world's largest um, uh, independent sharing economy community, a quarter of a million people, um, and uh, what we've recognized is the fact that people are, um, uh, that you have more and more people, millions of people around the world who are uh, earning and relying on income through the sharing economy. And so there's a big debate that's happening, including up here, on whether or not this is a good thing, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, there's this regulation, there's this thing, this protection that's missing, and this is changing, and this is not like it used to be. And so there's a debate that's happening on whether or not this is good or not. Um, you know, I think that that debate should be happening because it's only we can make things better. Um, but while we're waiting for that debate to happen, Piers is saying, okay, how do we make this better today? What can we do for people who are working in the sharing economy today, and how do we make this as good for them as possible? So um, uh, to give you a little background on what, on what we do, uh, we've, um, you know, our, our mission is to make the sharing economy work for the people that power it. Uh, and we've recently launched sort of, you know, two uh, main products. Um, one we're calling Income Discovery, um, and it helps people find the best opportunities for work for them based off of where they live and their skills and their assets and interests. Um, this is sort of what you were talking about, William, uh, in your last comment. Um, so if you go to the website, you see dozens of opportunities. Uh, they're curated for you based off of you know, where you live and what you're interested in doing. Um, 
the, uh, the opportunities are then uh, reviewed by the peers community. So we lean into the fact that we have a quarter of a million people on the platform. Uh, you can find out what people say about working on the platform. Um, so there's a five-star rating. Uh, we have average earnings. Um, and there's also a community forum. So you can hear people talking about, how do I decide between Uber and Lyft and Sidecar? Um, what are the best Etsy stores for me to get started on? Um, what are the insurance uh, regulations or implications I need to be worried about? So there's an entire dialogue around. So it's mostly peer-based in terms yes, of it's guidance. It's absolutely peer-based for guidance. Um, so, um, so on the one side, we're saying, you know, and this is really what we heard from our community. Our community was like, um, you know, I love this. This income, you know, is really important for me. Um, but I'm not really sure about where to spend my time. And wait, what was that one that you mentioned? Feastly? I can get paid to cook? Like, uh, I, I love dogs. I can make money watching dogs? Like, I've never heard of this before. And so, you know, Uber and Airbnb and Lyft, like, you know, most people had raised their hands when you hear about it. But, like, this long tail, um, you know, was really empowering and exciting for people to understand all these different opportunities. So, sorry, I don't want to butt in, but actually, Shelby. Um, Honestly, it's not good enough what you're doing. Come on. Look, uh, so, so we go to the Pierce site and it says, yeah, average earnings on, is it HomeJoy, $20 an hour. Okay, so what, what's the spread either side of that? So what that's percentage the cleaning of hours service, right? are being sold? That's Sorry? a cleaning service, just for Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, it, how does this solve Catherine's? So, so uh, we, we, we launched three weeks ago, so <laughs> take a, have a little bit of patience. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Come on, there's urgency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the IPO for the month. Yeah, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Um, you know, we're working hard, Wingham, all right, to, okay. to address the exact issues that you're talking about. Can I finish? Yeah, of course Thanks. you can. <laughs> I was um, about to suggest something, but carry on. Okay, <laughs> love, love your suggestion. Um, so the second side uh, of, of peers is what we're calling a support marketplace. So this is sort of, uh, we've aggregated together all of the different support services that will be helpful once you are working in the sharing economy. So um, tax tools, um, legal resources, um, uh, you know, CPAs who specifies, you know, who, uh, who are very knowledgeable in the sharing economy, um, benefits, 401k, uh, health insurance, um, and then support services. So things that make it easier to run your sharing economy business, like um, you know, pricing optimization for your Airbnb, um, uh, you know, analytics for ride sharing, we're looking, you know, very much need data. Um, and on Thursday, Pierce is actually launching two proprietary products. Um, one of them is a sharing economy flavor of insurance that does not exist right now and people um, are very vulnerable to. Uh, another one is an entirely new product that has absolutely no counterpart in the traditional economy. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's engineered to provide um, income stability for um, people who are um, ride train drivers. Um, and so uh, there's absolutely no analogy in, in sort of the, um, yeah, the, the, the traditional economy. And so well, what, unemployment insurance. Uh, the, well, the product that, that we've built has no, it, 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 unemployment insurance has nothing to do with it. No, but you're saying, you know, in terms of, of, of insuring against lumpy income, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's directly comparable to the kinds of benefits you would get as an employee because you'd be covered by unemployment insurance. You lose your I, job. I, I, I can't talk about the specific product right now. I can talk about it on Thursday. I, I would love to talk about it afterwards. <laughs> I, can, I can talk about it like, privately, but... Um, I, I hear what you're saying around unemployment insurance. It's not an analogous to the specific product that we've created. Um, and again, you know, we are five people and we're working for three months on these things. So we're pretty proud of what we've created. We're creating a dialogue around where there are gaps and where there are needs. Um, you know, the, the, the scenario that's being painted up here is really sort of like doom and gloom. And if you actually talk to the majority of people that are earning money in the sharing economy, 
uh, a lot of them are pretty happy about it. They're, they're, they're happy about the so-called flexibility that they have. And even, it might not be universal, uh, but it's a lot better than they had it, you know, at their past job. Um, they, sorry, <laughs> I couldn't stop myself. What about the people who aren't earning in the sharing economy? The, the problem is, Shelby, there's a much, you need much deeper data than this. And you're asking the, your members, you're asking people doing this work to contribute the data. But your funders have this data. The transactions mm -hmm. are going through their servers. You know, why isn't, I'm sorry to go on about HomeJoy. I just happened to be reading about them uh, this morning. Um, why isn't HomeJoy reporting? You know, this is how many of our people are just not selling anything. These are the areas. Because how do you how do you get people to join your platform? If you're an, if you're a new platform, how do you get them to join when you're you're new and you don't have people earning money? You right? can buy an ad on Piers's marketplace income <laughs> thing. Actually, they sell them. Uh, or you yeah. you buy Google AdWords. But I, I think, the way there, you start I think these there, yeah. But I mean, I think there's probably some value to non-transparency from the platform's perspective. Oh, from the yeah. platform's yeah. perspective, there's huge <laughs> value. I, I thought we were talking about the work. Yeah. One of the roles of government, though, is one, level the playing field, and two, force information transparency. Mm -hmm. A mutual fund is told you will disclose your past track record. If you're going to be dealing with markets on this size, there's no reason they shouldn't be told. You need to tell the drivers, you know, median income of driver, what hours were the maximum, et cetera. I, I'm using Uber as an example, but you could do that with any of these markets. Yeah, well, Uber famously you know, claimed that their median driver was earning $90,000 a year or something like that. And, and a Slate reporter went out and tried to find right. so all of these drivers, and it turned out to be a unicorn. You know, and, there, there was no such thing. And before the SEC, you had brokers and asset managers who were claiming, you know, we produce 100% a year return. And that's why the government stepped in and said, no, we're going to have a level playing field here, and we're going to have information transparency. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, these things are very important. You know, I hope that we do see more transparency from the platforms. I do hope that we see transparency, you know, additional transparency, you know, from the government and you know, and proper regulations from the government. I think there are, you know, there are three distinct entities that can produce the change that we all want to see: um, the government, the individual platforms themselves, and third parties like peers or like other, you know, any of the other companies that are creating products and services for the sharing economy. So my my perspective is the way that we're going to see, you know. People are working on these platforms today. We have needs today. How long is it going to take for these things to happen? It's not going to happen overnight, but we can create products overnight, and we are. So I, I wanted to transition um, away from some of this stuff, as lively as this conversation has been, um, about some other ways in which you know, we can think about um, ways that data might be helpful to workers who are entering this, this space. So Sarah, you had talked about how you tried well, whatever it was, like 20 different platforms mm -hmm. and, and many different, uh, that, that, that utilized many different skills of yours or didn't use many different skills of yours depending on whether you actually got any customers to bite. Um, in terms of workforce development in training, education, you know, when we're thinking about how we should be educating workers and, and nudging them um, in terms of getting different kinds of skills. Uh, how does the, this sharing economy play into that? I mean, should we be expecting that workers are going to have to, have, to, to know how to do like 10 different things decently <laughs> well, like gift wrapping and cooking and dog walking? I mean, some of them may not require a lot of training, like dog walking, but cooking presumably does. So how do we think about um, policies that will support workers in, in obtaining the human capital that's necessary to, to subsist in this kind of economy. 
Um, I think separating kind of the online and offline as two different things is kind of a mistake. I think that this plays into what already exists and you're not gonna, like if you need to build a skill for something that you would do to get a job in person, you're gonna need to build a skill to do something that you would online. But where I think this is actually helpful is that it can help you find opportunities to build a skill. So I ran into a lot of people, though I ran in, I interviewed about like two dozen people who were doing this for longer than I were and trying to make a living or trying to do something. Um, and I ran into very few who were successfully meeting their income goals. But I did run into some who felt like it was helping them build their resume. Um, like they did a few handyman jobs and now they feel comfortable applying for I mean, not a few handyman jobs, that's, that's a bad example, but um, like a comedian, for instance, who was taking jobs, or he, try, he tried to find jobs where there was some entertainment aspect to it. I did a flash mob with him, for instance. Um, or this woman who was trying to break into an entertainment industry, and she was trying to meet people and network by taking these jobs. Um, so that could be a resume builder. Maybe you want to prove that you're a chef by having this experience where you cook in people's homes. Um, and then the other thing was actually as a job finder. So I was offered a, a many different jobs after I had responded to TaskRabbit ads or people found me on whatever platform. Sometimes they were just there and the initial request would be, hey, do you want to come in for a job interview? Um, and also like when you start working with somebody, so I tutored um, a 13-year-old and after a couple of times she's like, oh, do you just want a full-time like regular position and I'll pay you in cash. I can pay you 30% more because I'm not giving TaskRabbit 30%. Um, so I think, yeah, like getting experience and um, kind of as a job board. Well, so, so <laughs> Wingham, what other kinds of skills though might people in this, in this sector might need to, I mean, because some of it sounds like, I mean, some of the examples that you gave were people who were specializing in, you know, handyman jobs or whatever, or, or cooking, yeah. but I imagine that there might be more, pe there are people who are like you, maybe not trying quite as many different platforms and quite as many different types of jobs, but are kind of trying to cobble together mm -hmm. um, different kinds of work, depending on, on what, you know, Mondays, there's demand for dog walking or whatever. Um, so I, I'm wondering, Wingham, if you could speak, with, speak to <coughs> a little bit about how we should be training workers, uh, not only in terms of building specific skill sets, but also in terms of like risk management. You know, should do we need to focus more on like financial literacy, or I mean, I, that's probably the case for many other reasons too, but also the kinds of skills that would go along with with being your own boss and managing your own time. I think it's a pretty horrible idea. If you don't mind me saying so, <laughs> that that this. That, that somebody has to say, how do we train the workers? I prefer the, the notion, how do we empower the workers? How do we show them where the opportunities are so that if there is a, a shortage of dog walkers around where you live on Mondays and you've never actually walked a dog, you might think, you know what, I don't mind dog walking and I've got a good track record in window cleaning and gardening, so I know I'm going to be attractive to people who want to buy dog walking. Okay, and, this, and the, the platform is telling me, well, this is what you can charge because this is what the market will bear at the moment. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll try dog walking and I'd probably better, you know, look up online how to walk dogs. Um, because, and, and that's really interesting because now I've started dog walking. Well, now the platform is saying, well, perhaps you should broaden into 
Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of an extension of dog walking, but um, uh, my mind's Dog grooming. Dog grooming, dog grooming. Um, because, uh, and when you've started dog grooming, well, actually, maybe there's a market for home hair cutting that's not being very well served, where you? I'm sorry. There's it's, a startup for that, actually. Uh, I don't doubt it. I, I have no doubt somebody somewhere is working on how to be the Uber of dog grooming yeah. as we speak. Um, and that's part of the problem, because if you actually want to work in this market, you need data and you need and, and your currency is reliability you, if you can build a great track record of reliability and it may only be in litter picking uh, and leafleting and pretty low level stuff but if then uh, that makes you attractive in all sorts of other sectors and you've got the the data that tells you which sectors uh, you will be attractive in because of supply and demand around where you live and if you are in a seamless system, so we call the system that I'm talking about CEDA, Central Database of Available Hours, and if you imagine a CEDA for Washington, and it could underpin all sorts of other markets. So this isn't some sort of consum giant consumer brand. It's like a credit card processing module. It can sit in anyone's site, but it allows you to seamlessly go from market to market. Um, that, I think, is the answer. It's not sitting up here planning. It's not Uber over here saying, right, let's impose surge pricing. It's how do you give people the tools they need in as uh, a low overhead, safe, empowered, informed environment as possible. And then who knows what's going to happen. But that's how capitalism is supposed to work. But it's you don't think there's, there's any here. additional, like, specific, it, it's just give the, give the workers the data and they'll be able to... Yes. They'll be able to translate it into income? Yes, because I mean if the market then demands mentoring, the market will provide mentoring if you've got the right platform. So if I'm thinking, oh, could I do dog walking? I don't know. I'm, I'm rather frightened of dogs. Maybe what I need is an hour with an experienced dog walker. And maybe you need the platform that will say, click here if you want an hour this weekend with an experienced dog walker. You're going to have to pay you know, $12 for that. But that's part of your ongoing training for which you're now taking responsibility because we the platform are already showing you that you could be earning you know an extra fifty dollars a week if you were doing dog walking because the times you're available in the locale you want to work and the terms under which you'll take bookings tells us dog walking could be big for you for the next few weeks at least Stephen, uh, you look yeah, like you want to yeah, weigh just, in on a, that a couple of thoughts though let's old economy for the moment you know you don't your relationship with your employee goes, is not transactional. They will be with you for a number of years. In some industries, that average maybe two or three years. In some industries, it's longer. You as an employer have an incentive to invest in their education. You as an employer have an incentive to think about training. I'm not saying that works perfectly. Trust me, it doesn't. <laughs> but there are some incentives there. And in theory, a company should be risk neutral when it's thinking about investing. You know, It should be as risk neutral about buying a Xerox machine as training somebody. It's simply an investment. When you start having individuals taking responsibility for their own training, one problem you may run into is individuals may be risk averse. That you know, it may take $1,000 to train to be a champion hair cutter or a you know, champion dog groomer or whatever. Well, A, they may not have $1,000. You have financial barriers be somebody who is doing this on an individual basis may be risk averse. They may say, if very rationally, well, yes, I know on average this is the right thing to do, but there is some risk that by the time I finish my training, there is no market for me to be doing this. So it, it has a lot of issues. 
So Maureen started this conversation by talking about um, how this plays into the broader trends in inequality. And Stephen, I was wondering if you could speak to that. I mean, there are ways in which if people are out of work and they need work, you know, this, this gives them an opportunity mm -hmm. to earn more income. Um, but do you see that, do you, do you, how, how do you, I guess, what, what is the interplay between the rise of these mm -hmm. kinds of, of sectors well, well first and this, inequality? This is pure speculation. There is no econometric model behind what I'm about to say. Let me just be very transparent. I would say neutral to net positive. I mean, I think the bigger long-term trends are what I described as the hollowing out at the middle, uh, the loss of those mid-skill, mid-career jobs. Um, as an opportunity, you know, look, dog walking is not, one of my objectives, dog walking is not a long-term great career path, but by and large, getting money for something which is honest labor is a good thing. It, get, it keeps people in the economy. Um, and again, I would also emphasize what I'm saying. I think the sharing economy is probably net-net good overall for society. I mean, again, as we're saying, who's benefiting here? If you think about the sharing economy overall, what I would describe as the legitimate part of it, which is the lowering the transaction costs, the making it easier to find people to do work, I believe net-net that's positive for the overall economy. Probably positive for the casual workers relative to their other options in today's economy. But I do have a very strong view that it should be a level playing field that to the extent the sharing economy is Airbnb and they just don't happen to be collecting um, the hotel tax in New York City, you know, that's not some magical transformation. That's, a, that's regulatory arbitrage, right. basically. And, you know, that should be leveled out. I mean, if, if we think taxes are too high, fine, cut everyone's taxes. But otherwise, everyone should be paying, you know, for the same activity, everyone should be paying the same tax structure. Mm -hmm. So, Shelby, I, I have a feeling I know where you're going to <laughs> land on this question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> so predictable. Um, so, you know, I think the first thing I want to say is, um, you know, let's start off by remembering that, uh, you know, the old economy is sort of what has brought us to where we are today with, you know, a major income inequality problem. So, um, you know, it's, uh, so the question would be, you know, how you know, does, this, does the sharing economy impact that in one way or another? Um, you know, you talk about the jobs, you know, the, the work or the jobs that are being created and, you know, uh, many people are comparing them sort of conceptually to, um, you know, to uh, sort of a, a, a very much a middle class job. Um, but the reality is that, you know, the only jobs that have really been created in our economy since the 80s are low, wa low wage, no benefit jobs. So we should be comparing them to sort of you know, things like McDonald's. So, you know, is it better for somebody to be earning through TaskRabbit or, or Lyft or Uber or McDonald's or, you know, something along those lines? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to say. Um, I'm not sure that's quite true on net. Okay. I mean, we've created lots of very high income jobs yeah. too. It's the middle it's, jobs it's that are the kind of going away. Okay, the, the polarization. Um, all right, so the, uh, in terms of thinking about the, the impact on the overall economy, um, I, I think about, so I, I have no scientific data to back this up. Um, <laughs> I'd, love that, I'd love to. Uh, I feel like look. there are a lot of disclaimers yeah. along those lines. Sorry. <laughs> but, but I mean, conceptually about what happens to a dollar. So let's think about a dollar that you spend at Hyatt compared to a dollar that's spent at, at Airbnb. So how is that dollar distributed? And my you know, completely uneconomically <laughs> supported view is that uh, the dollar spent at Airbnb is going to be distributed far, uh, a, you know, much further and much wider. 
um, you know, as a, like, the, the majority of it goes to an individual person. You know, they may be hiring um, people to, to manage their apartment or to manage their, their cleaning. or the Rather than to shareholders, for example. Yeah, rather than just to shareholders. Um, and then, you know, I would also argue that, that you know, that, that dollar, um, is it compared to Hyatt, where the majority of it goes into, you know, sort of a cor corporate bureaucracy, um, and then gets stuck there for a long time. I also would argue that the dollar spent uh, in the sharing economy probably has a much higher velocity, and is probably respent. Uh, uh, much quicker and, and ultimately has a bigger impact on the economy. So, um, you know, I would argue that a dollar spent in the sharing economy is, you know, uh, would ultimately lead to, you know, to, to less income inequality. But I don't know if that, you know, has broad enough implications to say that, you know, it's, there's going to be a big enough change. Uh, Did you want to? Yo, you look like you wanted to. Well, yeah, uh, one, one comment I'd make about Airbnb in New York. Uh, hotels in New York City are fairly heavily unionized. So one of the arbitrages here is you're substituting you know, somebody else uh, doing the housekeeping who is probably not getting a union wage for a union worker. That yeah, assumes I, the market is static, though, and it might be that Airbnb has grown the market. Oh, quite possibly. Although, yes, although that actually, from New York City's point of view, is a, we could be here all night. That has another set of issues because we have a fixed amount of real estate in New York. So growing the market has meant apartments which were supposed to be out there for actual rental, long-term rental being flipped into the hotel market. Yeah. That we could be here for the rest of the day. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I have been thinking about is as these platforms grow, you know, there are, there are major network effects. You talked yes. about this some in your initial remarks. Um, and the platforms have more power to sort of harvest both, it's a two-sided market, right? So they, they, have, they have power to both raise prices on consumers once, they, once they're no longer in a price war like Uber and Lyft are. You know, I mean, it's, they're both very attractive services right now because they're really cheap, because they're trying to capture the whole market. Um, but once there's a winner, presumably they won't feel the same pressure to keep prices quite as low. Um, and then they can also harvest... Um, the supplier side of the market, right? Yeah. That they can, and we've, we've actually already seen that in the mm -hmm. case of the, the ride-sharing wars, where, like in LA, I think they cut UberX fees by something like 20%. Um, and and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, Stephen, about um, that sort of power imbalance and going forward, um, you know, as we see some of these battles over which is the dominant platform and all of, you know, whether it's, it's um, uh, sort of sharing your apartment, and Airbnb seems to have won that, although they're still home away, and you know that kind of thing. Um, and, and and some of these other some of these other areas, ride sharing, um, so there are pop up restaurants now. You know, what are the implications for workers going forward as as the more as the platforms um, sort of get more settled? Yeah. <laughs> to the extent it's a market where the platform tends to be winner take all, and I actually think the the rideshare platforms like Uber, Lyft will tend towards that direction. I think that's going to be very bad for the workers because they've got a homogenized product. You know, it's not really that differentiated who picks you up in the morning if you're going somewhere. Um, you've got a company which will have a massive amount of information. And I am not a Marxist economist, but there's that expression, the reserve army of the unemployed. And, you know, in rideshare, that sort of classic, most Americans do have a car. New York City is a little bit unusual that way, but outside of New York, most people have a car. It, becomes, it can easily become a race to the bottom. Um, other markets, I think, will be less susceptible to that, I should note. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit before, but, uh, well, your example on tutoring. 
you know, that's a situation where you've got somebody who's working with your child. If you're happy with that relationship and you're happy with the person, you're probably going to go back to that person. You know, it's, it's more of a relationship where I, I see it harder to commoditize. Uh, you know, a home caterer, uh, harder to commoditize. But for the things where it tends to be a winner-take-all market and it can be turned into a commodity, uh, I think the platform's got a huge pricing power in the middle. So yes. it is also worth pointing out that there are victims when these platforms fail. Yes. So yes. You, yes, everyone wants to be the dominant platform. But in Britain, we've recently seen the failure of Pocket Shop, which is kind of our equivalent of Instacart. And Pocket Shop on paper had everything going for it. It had a deal with one of the major supermarket chains. If you were trying to do this kind of work, uh, you would have signed up for Pocket Shop. And you might have done a lot of diligent bookings to build a good track record. And then they just died overnight. Whipcar, which was our equivalent of uh, yes, the peer-to-peer sure. -peer, uh, car rental, did the same. There's a lot of collateral damage borne by the workers because that's your trading. You, they own your trading record, your relationships, your hopes of future transactions, and they can just evaporate overnight. Well, for sure, but I mean, Shelby. you know, what happened in 2008? I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs, right? So, like, you know, if you have somebody who has a portfolio of income streams through a number of these sharing economy pl platforms, I'd argue it's far more resilient than relying on a single company that can you can also be laid off. You can, but if you had some sort of official platform that was available to all these markets to underpin, then it wouldn't matter if they evaporated because the trading record you're, you're belongs you're to the, the reputation. Individual. Sorry, you're talking about the reputation. Yeah, I'm talking. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I've been agreeing with everything you're saying. Sorry, my brain's just uh, starting fizzing. Putting. Okay. I'm sorry. Just putting in my little plug for government. Again, I would say a role for government would simply be to mandate that the people using these platforms are entitled to their records. Yeah. That you know, if, the, if it goes under, mm -hmm. you are the one who has a claim and that they have to give it to you. Or if you choose to switch to another platform, <coughs> they have to give you a printout of your ratings so you can go to the other platform and say, and yes, would be, I'm a good person. Sorry. It, it, Sorry. 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 it doesn't necessarily have to go under either. It's mm -hmm. like you said you don't have a jerk boss. Yeah. You do, it's the platform. Um, yeah. And so it can change any time. So, for instance, my success story was this man named Dimitri who was at the top of the task rabbit earners board, and he was making about $30,000 a year doing handyman skills. Um, but he recently emailed me, TaskRabbit changed its platform, and now he can't make a living because the way they changed it, he's no longer automatically surfaced to the top. So there's a lot of risk, you, and mm -hmm. you can be fired from these platforms. Well, yeah. and, um, and, and in, like in the case of some of these ride-sharing contracts with drivers, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that like with Uber, they can kind of unilaterally change the terms of the contract mm -hmm. as long as they give whatever it is, two weeks right. notice, or, which, is, which is how they were able to cut um, UberX drivers' pay by 20% right. in, in LA. So yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know, as you see more opportunities, what you know, we hope that you'll see as well is uh, competition for supply. So maybe you have, you know, Uber becomes a dominant, uh, you know, a dominant in the ride-sharing um, uh, space. But there's, you know, <coughs> dozens of other ways that you can be earning money. And so, you know, we're aiming to, you know, appears you know, through the income discovery tool, through, the, uh, we're, we're we're aiming to introduce transparency, um, make it so that people, you know, whenever the the platforms are jerking you around, um, that's going to show. If you look in the ratings right now, Uber or Lyft, surprisingly, is getting slaughtered, and the. Um, uh, you know what's happened is a, a number of people in San Diego um, were the the rates got dropped and they were very unhappy and so 
something about the, the rating system got posted, and um, a, a whole bunch of people came in, and, and one after another um, expressed their displeasure with the way that, that Lyft um, lowered their rates. And so I think that transparency is going to be really important. It's going to make it so that if you jerk your, your employees around, if you change your hiring practices, if you, if you change your rates, if this is not you know, a, a reliable income source, um, that's going to show. And then ultimately, it's going to be harder for you to attract and maintain supply, particularly whenever you have other options. Sorry, can I just build on what quickly, we have very to, quickly what, yeah, what we have Stephen to, said <laughs> about uh, make it easy to move between different markets? It would be great if peers did that. So you get a kind of passport that you can take from market to market, <laughs> which has your trading record attached. And what would be really great then is if peers weren't transparent on the charges these platforms make. Because you know, TaskRabbit takes 20%, uh, builds 20% on top of the workers' costs. Maybe someone else would do it for 10%. And if you could make it easy to migrate to that second market, then you really are empowering the workers. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, so now we're moving on to questions. And I was told to tell the uh, several people who are watching us online, streaming, hi, mom, um, <laughs> that Hello. if you have questions, you should email them to Maya. And I believe her information is in the initial invite. So let's, let's start out with questions here. Oh, and we have microphones somewhere. Yes. So, so, to my colleague uh, from the UK, I was hoping for you to talk about an example of something that's concrete rather than uh, aspirational. You know, is, is there something already in existence that is an example of best practice that we can look to in the UK? Uh, there is in terms of the technology, there isn't in terms of... A I'm, I'm concerned about the worker here. Yeah, of course. Um, there isn't in terms of the deep market. That's the next stage. Uh, it is very difficult to launch these advanced markets in this kind of sector. Irregular work transactions are among the most complex in any market anywhere. And to move from where we are now to where we could be is, a, is an exercise in market making. Does CETA... The, the, the technology the, exists, but it, yeah. does, but it hasn't no, actually I mean, it's been piloted, it's been tested into the ground. But in term, I mean, very broadly, if you want a cedar for Washington, somebody in Washington has to say, I'm going to put at least 2.5 million pounds worth of demand for fragmented labor in one area of the city through the cedar in its first year to get it going. Because it has to get to critical mass before it can be useful. So listing sites can be very useful in a thin market because they are just lists of possibilities. When you go to an advanced market, it's much more difficult to launch them. And that's what we're working on now. And it's very difficult to see a way of doing it without government bodies getting involved. Okay. And that's the journey we've got to travel. Right here. So just one observation and two questions. So Louis Soares, American Council on Education. Hi, Marie. Um, so, you know, it, you know, as the panel was evolving, one of the sensations that I was having was that, you know, the sharing economy platforms are becoming the new boogeyman, like Walmart was, <laughs> you know, for a while, or may still be. But so the questions are, when does, if the unit of production is now moving away from a job to a project, at what threshold do we get to a place where local local economic policy has a local regulatory policy does something about it, national does? You know, we went through this process as we headed into the scale economies of the industrial. So we set up a whole way of thinking about labor market policy as companies got bigger. And companies got bigger before the government got bigger, right? So are we at that point with this economy? Have we moved production to a point where more and more of it is going to be projects and not jobs that you need 
regulatory action at multiple levels? Is it scaled? Is it local first? Second is, how much of this conversation is uh, driven by class, right? We've had a, uh, a growing freelance economy, not a sharing economy, among highly skilled professionals at least since the mid-90s, if not before. And we had, there was some hand-wringing about that in the beginning, but now there's whole lifestyle magazines about the freelance economy for highly educated people. So how much of this conversation is driven by class? So what's the threshold for significant regulatory action? And what's the level of it? Is it state, local, state, national? Are we there yet? And how much of this conversation is driven by class? Do you want, well, who? who? Um, the first one seems like a pretty natural <coughs> fit for you. Okay. Um, I'd split that into two pieces. Um, the quick no regret move now is simply enforce the existing laws. You know, I've said before, I don't really see any logic to regulatory arbitrage. That you know, the existing policies on taxes, et cetera, should just go into effect. Um, the longer term question, in my mind, is not so much the Ubers or uh, Airbnb. What I would view as the very disturbing trend are some of the uh, companies which are looking at uh, doing this for the regular workforce that are going to places like um, Amazon, grocery store chains, and saying, gee, why don't you let us just outsource your entire workforce for us in the store? And if that starts happening on a large scale, I think that triggers a lot of regulatory issues about making sure people get benefits, making sure you know, that we understand what we're transitioning into. And there have been some major lawsuits. Yes. You know, FedEx, I think, yeah, was dealing excuse with me. this. And I suspect also there will be lots of lawsuits. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody so. want to take on the class issue? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, you know, by, by 2015, um, millennials uh, will make up the majority of the workforce. Um, and uh, they work very differently. They, um, they, they really appreciate, uh, you know, flexibility and they're much more likely to become a freelancer. Uh, you brought up the growing number of freelancers. A third of the U.S. workforce right now um, is a freelancer, identifies as a freelancer. Uh, over 50 million people, uh, 50 million Americans are freelancers. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, most of the, you know, of the opportunities we talked about today, you know, are relatively low skill. Um, but there are, uh, you know, a proliferation of, of new opportunities that, that are coming up, you know, every day. Um, and so I think that we will, we will continue to see, you know, uh, uh, more opportunities that will go up the value chain. Um, and also, you know, I, I think that some of these opportunities um, you know, enable more of a, yeah, uh, different types of freelancing. So for example, you know, let's say you're a graphic designer or you're an engineer. So you are somebody that's well educated, you have you know, a relatively high paying job, um, but you know, as you sort of have lulls or, or gaps or if you have a slow season, for, you know, depending on what your, you know, uh, your freelancing work is, um, a lot of people are using you know, the, sort of the, the sharing economy as ways to fill in the gaps. So before, you know, if you're an actor, for example, you used to you know, get jobs waiting tables between gigs. Um, now, you know, you can drive for Uber for a month and then, you know, you, you move into a GIF and then, you know, pick it back up again, you know, whatever the combination is. But, um, you know, we're seeing a broad trend of a growth in freelancing and I think that um, access to, to income through the sharing economy is going to make that an easier transition for people. Right here. So I spent, I spent several months in Rwanda this year. And it was really shocking to me, it was really remarkable to me that more than 50% of all the economic activity in Rwanda, and I think this is true for many other African countries, is in the informal economy. And it's 
people don't choose to be a part of the sharing economy so much as by necessity they cobble together bits of work in order to make a living. And if I don't know if there are any Rwandans here today, but they probably would be laughing at our conversation because they've been doing this much longer than we have. My question is, I think for low in, for very low income people who are not highly educated and who do not have access to internet platforms on a regular reliable basis, it makes sense that access to the sharing economy might grow more organically through neighborhood organizations or community groups or even churches. That's what's happened in Rwanda. And that raises a whole different kind of set of questions about organization, about government participation, about the pro a big problem in Rwanda is that people do not report this income for taxes. They just don't do it. And the Rwandan government is pulling out their hair because they don't know how to calculate GDP when so much of the activity is off the books. So is there another conversation that we need to have about lower income individuals who don't have choices, but for whom there might be great opportunities in, the sharing, in a sharing economy? Anyone here like to take that on? Very happy to. Um, yeah, uh, the, the issue is that in, I think it's fair to say, in, a, in an urbanized society, the, these transactions are phenomenally complex because it's not about your friend who knows someone who, for instance, is willing to look after your animals for the day. It is about you need a window cleaner, he needs a set of ladders, is he regulated, is he safe, uh, is he available at those times, can he be contacted, how do we construct his price, and so on. Um, and you really, it's almost impossible to make those transactions work on any kind of economically sustainable basis without a platform. Uh, and our view, I'm afraid, is that the existing platforms are pretty primitive. Um, but so how do you help the people who can't get on the platform? Because they don't have access to the internet, they don't know how the internet works. You've got to extend the platform out into people. So let's take a, a, a deprived area of Washington. You need, let's call them mentors, peer-to-peer -peer supporters, whatever you want to call them. And you can marshal them through the platform because they've got to know how it works. And if a, a low-income individual is told, you're going to get 10 hour, 10 one-hour slots at a time that suits you, at a place that suits you, with one of these mentors. And they've been funded by government, by charity, uh, however. And they will help you. They will assist you onto a platform for these kind of transactions. They will identify where your opportunities are. They'll come along on your first booking. They'll show you how the internet works. And they'll be doing that under supervision. And there'll be sort of pro forma report that they do at the end of each of these sessions. That has been piloted in London through a CEDAR-type platform. That can be a very cost-effective way of doing this, sorry, this kind of thing. But you can't take the platform away because these transactions are just so complex when you drill down into what's actually going on with these arrangements. And that's doubly so if you're going to bring them into the legitimate economy. Back. Hi. I'm not sure if it's on or not. but. Um, I guess the, the positives I see about this are, are that a lot of these markets are for personal services that can't be offshore. So they're creating jobs here. Um, potentially saving tens of thousands of dollars in student debt because you really don't need a college education to walk dogs. So I'm just trying to figure out, though, beyond that, 
where, where the positives are. I mean, from a consumer perspective, it's nice and convenient to be able to get a ride whenever you want one. But how does odd jobs as a career work for economic security of the workers? I work with AARP and wonder, you know, about retirement security as well when people get older and, and maybe can't walk dogs anymore. Um, I just, I don't, I mean, Sarah talked about a race to the bottom just within the areas where she was offering her services. It seems to me that these markets also have the capacity to drag down the mainstream economy in a race to the bottom, like with taxi drivers or hotel housekeepers or whatever. I worry about those folks. Um, if if we are, and, and in industries like construction, where there's been a lot of misclassification of employees as independent contractors, wages and benefits and job security have really sort of gone into the toilet. So how, how does a career of odd jobs basically uh, turn out to be a net plus for the economy if people don't end up with a paycheck that can support a household or any of the other elements of economic security. Shelby, this seems like, <laughs> <laughs> like a, like a ta tailor-made question for you. Um, well, I mean, the, uh, I think the first step is, uh, is sort of moving away from thinking about these as odd jobs and we're thinking about, thinking about it as work um, and trying to you know, figure out what are the things that people need in order to be successful. They need to know where they, they should be spending their time. They need to know how much money they can be making. Um, they need to know what <laughs> skills that they need. Um, and um, it, you know, I, I think that um, it, there's certainly, yeah, this isn't a panacea. It's not going to solve all problems. But so over the summer, whenever we were sort of relaunching peers and deciding what it is we wanted to build, we did a lot of focus groups. We spoke to a lot of people within our community, a lot of people out of our community. Um, the single most interesting focus group that we did was with um, job seekers in Chicago. They were, it was unemployed people. Um, and uh, the conversation started with an extremely somber tone. Um, people brought in you know, a lot of shame, frankly. Um, they were, they, I've been looking for a job for six months, a year and a half. I spend six or seven hours a day looking for a job. I don't have any options. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my mortgage. Um, there was, you know, the tension in the room was palpable. <laughs> And then we started to talk about the sharing economy. We said, you know, hey, have you heard of Airbnb and Lyft and Uber? And most of them had raised their hands. And, and then we sort of went down the list. And what about Feastly and, and Dog Vacay and, um, you know, sort of this, the long tail of dozens and dozens of other opportunities. And people totally lit up whenever they heard this. Um, you know, they, it's like, I love to cook. You know, I, I, I can make money doing that, really? I can earn money, I, you know, I've got a bike. I can, I can do something for Postmates, really? Um, and we followed up, you know, it was, it was, they, this was incredibly empowering to them. That they didn't have to sit around and wait for somebody you know, to give them a job or to find a job. Um, you know, they were able to take matters in their own hands and start earning money right away. Um, we followed up with people and half of the people in that focus group signed up for one of the platforms. So they found this to be a good thing. The other thing that people talked about was you know, sort of uh, the impact on uh, you know, the flexibility on their life. And you know, if they'd be, you know, people really like these opportunities. Um, to quantify it, uh, on average, people said they'd be willing to make a quarter less um, to, uh, if, they had the flexibility, if they had flexibility as opposed to a traditional 9 to 5 job. Um, and when I pushed them on it, what that meant, they said typically you know, between forty-five and $60,000 was the number that people you know, continually were, 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 push, were pushing towards. 
And that is something that, you know, that is potentially achievable, uh, particularly if you've been working at it for a little while. So I think that trying to start out, you know, to, um, you know, start out and, and try earning from, you know, and relying entirely on TaskRabbit from day one, you're going, it's, it's not going to be successful for you. I'm sorry, Sarah. You know, you have <laughs> it, you've got to understand that it takes months to build a reputation on that. And so, you know, <laughs> you know the, um, if we can help people understand, you know, the way that you can balance the different platforms. So you sign up for a ride-sharing platform to do 80% of your work at the beginning because it's going to be consistent income for you. And the other 20% of your time, you do in one or two other platforms where you're building reputation. So I'll people, help people understand what this is like. And then as you are earning on three platforms, um, you talk about job security. I think that income security is something that people are more important about. Um, and so as you have a portfolio of, uh, of income, that actually becomes something that, that's quite robust. Um, I would just say that no one argues that it doesn't sound good. I think it sounds great. I think what you just laid out sounds amazing. I would love to do it. Um, <laughs> but what actually happens when you sign up for Postmates, um, say, and that's like a delivery courier service, is you, get an, you see an ad on Craigslist that says you can make $30 an hour um, delivering things on your bike, you say, oh, that's awesome because I only make $13 in my job as a courier right now. You show up, um, they tell you kind of all the policies that you need to follow to sign up for a shift, and then they explain, actually, it's 75% commission. And you do the math and you're like, okay, if I get a $5 tip every time, that's like four or five deliveries I have to make every hour anywhere in Manhattan in New York City traffic on my bicycle. And you're like, actually, no, I'm not going to make that much. And oh, if you don't have enough jobs for me, I sit at home. Um, and oh, that flexibility, like actually it's whenever there's a job available, you should take it right now, and that might be you know, at, when you're eating dinner. Um, and you'd rather work at noon, but you have to work when you would be eating dinner with your kids. Um, so I think there's like, when this comes against reality, there's a lot of other negotiations than the idea. Um, and maybe there's like a different narrative of like where this fits in for people that's not necessarily that it's their number one choice or that it's their full-time income. Okay, so we have time for one more question. Um, so one, well, one second, we'll just wait for the mic. Um, so one of the coolest kind of applicable uses of the sharing economy that folks have talked about and that I'm most excited about. I can't hear you the mic. Sorry. It is on. Sorry. I'll hold it up closer. Um, is uh, the ability to, to use the sharing economy to do work that you may be otherwise unqualified to do because of a licensing requirement or because hmm. of um, like an arbitrary barrier to employment that uh, lots of folks haven't been, haven't had time or the resources to be able to address, but it, not because they don't lack the ability to actually do that job. Um, so Sarah talked about a few places where uh, like it, the sharing economy has been used to like test hires or give people like a short-term chance to demonstrate that they can do the work with the promise of maybe being able to be hired in the long term. I was wondering if folks could maybe speak to other examples of uses of the sharing economy to allow people to basically like punch above their weight class. And um, if, if folks have also talked about some like um, limiting factors that, that have uh, stimmied the ability of, of using the sharing economy in all the good ways that we know it can be used. If, if anyone could speak to like, what's the number one limiting factor to being able to see more people interacting with the sharing economy in this particular way? So Stephen, you look like you yeah. were anxious to answer yeah, this. Yeah, no, because I actually think this is one of the more exciting aspects of the sharing economy, and we didn't get to it, so thank you. Thank you very much for that question. There's a lot of regulatory capture that goes on in the US. 
Uh, I think it's in Florida. It takes like three months and several thousand dollars to become a hairdresser. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's one American state where it's just like Utah. I think. Utah. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. but, there was a Planet Money episode about it. Yeah. So <laughs> um, New York City, there are 13,472 taxis, yellow taxis, allowed in New York, and the right to drive one of those yellow taxis is a million dollars. That's you know it's regulatory capture. There is no logic to that 13,472 number. So from a policy point of view, one of the things I think is actually very good about some aspects of the sharing economy, it's forcing government and regulators to suddenly explain why do we have some of these rules. And some of them don't make sense. And I think that's an extremely healthy thing. And then drilling it down one more layer to the extent it then opens up parts of the economy, to letting people do things, get practical experience that they wouldn't have otherwise been allowed to get, I think that's also extremely positive. This has been a fabulous conversation, and I appreciate all your great questions. I wish we could do more, but we unfortunately are out of time. So please join me in giving our panel a round of applause. And I hope you have a great.